So God is here. God is here. And uh, I was just reflecting on the fact that we're finishing the Threads uh, series um, and just by the vagaries of rotors and holidays and stuff, um, I had the privilege of starting off the series a month ago and, and finishing it now. And so I was just thinking about what have we been saying? What's the thread behind the threads? And the thread behind the threads is that God is here and with us uh, and available and wanting to be known. So I spoke of intimacy as a thread throughout Scripture way back at the end of July or beginning of August or whenever that was. Uh, and Owen spoke about Egyptian horses. Worth listening to. But it's about choosing God rather than other stuff. And Rich spoke about temples and how God comes to live in us. And we are now the temple. And Laura uh, spoke about mountains and whether we're on the mountaintop and in the valley, God is the God who is available to us. And then last week Owen spoke about dust and mortality and hard stuff like that. But how God is the God who knows of what we are made and his love for us nevertheless endures forever. And so we come to today, and we have food on the menu today, literally food on the menu, um, a more palatable, literally, subject after last week's in-your-face look at our dusty mortality. And we're getting really practical here with bread that's been made here. Some of you will have been able to smell the aroma of the bread, we're, we're appealing in our worship to all the senses today. So the bread has been cooked within the church overnight, and that's what we'll use for communion. Um, you've, seen the, you've seen us prepare the, the wine. Some of you I know are still worried about that. It's dangerously close to those cups on the table. Uh, but there's another bottle here, hiding behind it. Um, and uh, that's not the normal wine that we use, that's a, a bottle uh, of wine from grapes that Viv and I uh, picked from a, a vineyard in Worcestershire that her family have connections with, so I thought that again brought, I didn't tread them, I can promise you that, but we probably did pick them, uh, and uh, that's the wine we'll be using today. It's a, it's a vintage from Swanbrook Farm, uh, which actually has no connection with our swan, but it's nice that it it's got that name, isn't it? Just to kind of make real the bread and the wine that we might otherwise take for granted. And then we share the bread and wine and we move on to share food and fellowship together with the picnic. It all fits together beautifully, almost as if it were planned. So I'm going to hold the thread of our bread and wine Bible theme together by considering two sets of contrasts that seem to me to apply to bread and wine. The first, for those of you that are timing this, is longer than the second, so don't panic. 
So over here, first of all, we notice that bread and wine are totally ordinary and everyday and staple, but good within that. They're the basic foodstuffs which are good for us. So when Jesus wanted to tell a story uh, of God's goodness, uh, he asks the question, doesn't he, would a, would a father give a stone to a child who asks for bread? And of course the answer is no, he'll give bread because bread is good and our father is good and he gives good gifts to his children. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray that uh, all-encompassing summary prayer that we will pray a little bit later on this morning, the line which addresses our basic provision is, give us today our daily bread, not our daily cake or our daily steak. We start with the basics, and that means we start with bread. And we're maybe familiar with that everyday quality of bread, perhaps less so with wine, maybe not for all of us, but perhaps less so with wine. I'm old enough to remember a time when it was a rare treat to open a bottle of wine at home for a meal. It happened, you know, like at Christmas or Easter or when the aunts and uncles came. Not every week or every day. We drink it more often now. And we love it, don't we, when we find one of those articles in the press that affirms what Paul said to Timothy, that a little wine is good for our health. In Bible times, wine was an everyday drink. Uh, wine was made from grapes, uh, but it was also made in the Bible from figs and dates and pomegranates. It was consumed as part of the everyday diet. Remember, drinking clean drinking water was not as available as it is for us, let alone fizzy stuff. But it was also used during celebrations, at weddings. It was used for gifts and offerings. It was a symbol of God's blessing. I love it that when uh, John came to uh, structure his gospel, to let us know who Jesus really is as God, and he chose seven signs of all the things that Jesus did, of all the hundreds of things that Jesus did, he chose seven signs, which meant he had to really limit his choice. And one of those signs, and not just one of them, but the first one of those signs, is Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Steve Chalk tells the story of some puritanical Christians who didn't cope with that very well. He preached enthusiastically one morning uh, on the changing of water into wine, and at the end, one of the elders came up to him and criticised him for speaking so enthusiastically about wine. And Steve said, well, Jesus turned water into wine. And the elder said, and we don't think any more highly of him for it. It was fascinating to look through some of the, the history of, you know, Bible, uh, wine in Bible times. A couple of things I learned. One is that apparently the, the is, is, Israeli, the, the Palestinian wine, was about as thick and as disgusting looking as that. It wasn't the most favorite wine across the whole of the, 
you know, the known world of that time. Um, but there's also a, an argument amongst the experts about whether the everyday wine was alcoholic or not. And it really did feel as if the theology of the person making the argument determined whether they came to the conclusion that yes, it was alcoholic and it was great, or of course it wasn't alcoholic, because that would be awful, wouldn't it? Of course, you can have too much of a good thing. In fact, the very first mention of wine in the Bible uh, is the story of excess. It's of Noah getting drunk and being found naked by his children. I've got to say, I, I confess to feeling a little bit sorry for Noah. You know, he'd had a busy time. He'd built an ark. He'd collected in all the animals. He'd survived the flood. He'd landed the ark. He'd planted a vineyard. <laughs> he'd waited for the grapes to grow. He'd turned it into wine. You can imagine that he might have wanted to drink more than a glass. <laughs> Wisdom literature covers both sides of the wine thing. There are two sides, of course. And so we read in the Psalms that wine is the gift of God that gladdens the heart. But we also read in Proverbs, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down too smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And so we take seriously both the joy of God's gift and the dangers of misusing any of God's gifts. I couldn't find any warnings against excessive consumption of bread. <laughs> but maybe we need to heed some of those sometimes too. But for the most part, bread and wine make regular appearances as the honest, ordinary, good staples of life and food, which, for example, for people of the Middle East, then as now, also means symbols and signs of hospitality and of fellowship. And that's what happens here too. As we share bread and wine together, it's part of our welcome. It's part of our fellowship, our belonging to one another. And so we see that after Abraham returned from defeating his enemies, the mysterious priest Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to share. And soon after, when the three strangers arrive at Abraham's uh, place to bring the promise that Isaac's going to be born, the instinctive response to the arrival of strangers is not that kind of sometimes British response of hiding behind the curtain saying, pretend we're not here. It was the running into the tent and say, Sarah, get some of the finest flour, knead it, bake some bread. There are visitors, so we will offer bread, we will give hospitality. So the ordinariness of bread and wine is established, but here's something beautiful that God does. He takes the ordinary stuff the everyday stuff, and he makes it extraordinary. He turns it into something special. And so bread becomes part of the central liberation imagery of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus. 
part of God's people's preparedness for escape from slavery came with the instruction to make bread without yeast so that they would be ready to leave at a moment's notice. And then when they were commanded to remember the Passover year in and year out, what God had done in his deliverance of them, it became the annual feast of the unleavened bread. And as the people journeyed through the wilderness, bread's significance grows. The people complain that they're missing the rich food of Egypt, forgetting the slavery of Egypt. So God makes a promise, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And so the people received and were nourished by manna, bread from heaven. How natural then that as people developed their worshipping life together, both through the tabernacle in the desert, that's the sort of temporary worship place, and then ultimately in the grand temple that was built, bread and wine become a key part of the worship. In Exodus 25, we read the instruction, make a, a table of acacia wood and put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Bread was a reminder of where we started this morning. God is here. God is present. It must just be there on the table, always as a reminder. And I love this, when Aaron and his sons are ordained, this is one for those preparing for ordination, uh, or those ordained, um, the ordination service, a service which lasted seven days, maybe that's something we ought to think about. They knew how to celebrate, didn't they? Uh, And bread is involved again as Aaron and his sons were invited to wave the bread before the Lord as what was called a wave offering. That's something interesting about bread too. Part of the worship, part of the ordination of priests, part of remembering what God had done. And wine was used similarly as a drink offering to the Lord. I can't leave this section without mentioning a couple of Bible heroes whose names I'm almost certain that none of you will know. First of all, these both appear in in the book of Chronicles. There was a Levite called Mattathia. And Mattathia was the firstborn son of Shalem the Korahite. And he was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. So the first uh, temple bread maker, Mattathia. And then to add to him, we've got uh, Shimei the Ramathite. Shimei the Ramathite, who was in charge of the vineyards, and his mate, Zabdi the Shifmite, who was in charge of the produce of the vineyards for the wine vats. We have lots of babies born into this church. I still haven't come across anyone who had a Matithia or a Shimei or a Zabdi. But, you know, Owen, (laughs) planting ideas for the next one that comes along. Can you see how bread is both this ordinary, staple, good, everyday thing but also how much more it becomes part of worship, symbolising God's presence, God's provision, God's deliverance, God's involvement in the life of his people. 
And then Jesus comes along, and the world into which he was born and raised was, of course, one already familiar with the ordinariness and the extraordinariness of bread and wine. As we heard in our reading, he just replicated God's provision of bread in the wilderness in the feeding of the 5,000. And then he says something quite astonishing as he gets into a, a bit of a debate and dialogue with the crowds. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the living bread who comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Just feast for a moment on the, the journey that the humble loaf of bread has come on through Scripture from a bit of flour and, and oil and grain baked together into something that represents and is to us the body of Jesus for us. And Jesus wanted his followers never to forget that. So when he sat down with his friends for his last meal with them before his death, around the feast of the unleavened bread, of course, he pressed home this significance. Ordinary, extraordinary bread and wine would now forever be the sign, symbol, remembrance of his past passion and continuing presence. We read in the Gospels, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said to them, Drink this, all of you. And he said, Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what his followers did. Following Jesus' death and resurrection, they began to use the bread and the wine, which were always part of their daily life and their ritual and their ceremony, and they made it the new act of celebrating and remembering what Jesus had done for them. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Bread and wine, totally ordinary every day, yet even then offering sustenance, inviting fellowship, revealing hospitality. Bread and wine totally extraordinary. At the heart of worship, symbolising God's provision, making tangible, you can touch it, God's offer of himself. Right up to and including the offer of Jesus for us on the cross. No wonder we will say in a few moments, the Lord is here. And so as we come towards that sharing of bread and wine this morning, I introduce us into that with one much briefer and inviting contrast. First of all, this bread and this wine is free. You don't have to bring your money as you come up to the front to receive this morning. Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy and eat, you who have no money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread 
and your labour on what does not satisfy. Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. And we make this statement often here uh, when we invite you to receive. Regardless of where you have been or what you have done or how badly you've messed things up in the past, Jesus reaches out and offers you a place at this table, this place of encounter, this place of transformation. There is never any need not to come because you don't feel up to it this morning. You don't feel worthy of it today. The God who offers himself to us in valleys and on mountains offers himself to us here. The God who remembers the dust from which he made us and loves us anyway says, come without money or cost. It's crazy. It's outrageous. It's shocking. It's inviting. And here's the contrast. The bread and the wine is totally free, but the bread and the wine is immensely costly. part of the nature of bread that in order to make it, and Viv and I have been practicing this all week to try and make these bread makers work at the right time, we know about this. Well, actually, we didn't go back to the first principles. We didn't go and pick the grain. We didn't go and grind the grain into the dust of flour and mix the ingredients and knead the dough. We let the machines do that bit for us and then baked into bread. It's part of the nature of the loaf, as we'll see this morning, that to share it, it must be broken, it must be torn apart as Jesus' body was broken for us on the cross. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. And it's part of the nature of wine, as we have seen so vividly this morning, that in order to make it, grapes must be crushed, stamped on. On the night before his death, Jesus went to the place called Gethsemane to pray. It's a name that's about the crushing of olives, not grapes, but the imagery is the same. His heart burst, his sweat dropped blood with the pain and the stress of what lay ahead as he prepared to drink the cup which the Old Testament speaks of as the cup of vengeance. And as Owen started this morning with that verse from Isaiah about blood on our hands, we remember that the blood on the hands of Jesus washes the blood from our own hands that we might be washed clean. Bread and wine, perfectly ordinary, fully extraordinary, totally free, immensely costly. Come now. Let's share these gifts together. Remembering that the Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Remember that as we come to freely receive, we will then go to freely give. Remembering that as we place ourselves into God's hands and take Him into ours, we too will reveal and discover what it means to be totally ordinary and yet transformed into something totally extraordinary for him.